bow our heads and pray together. Father, thank You so much for Your kindness and Your goodness and faithfulness. We can sing about it. That we can receive all these, all these things by faith, knowing that You have revealed Yourself to us in all Your majesty and all Your beauty, Your grace and truth, and that You have even given us a new heart which responds in belief, that we can see You as that way, as the good God that You are. And Lord, we recognize that in Your goodness You have revealed Yourself to us through Your Word. And we want to honor Your Word this morning. We want to honor it by seeing it preached uh, well and thoroughly and accurately. We also want to honor Your Word by humbling ourselves and receiving it with an obedient heart, even the hard parts. And so, Lord, we ask that You would give us both and wisdom and, and humility and also joy as we receive Your Word together. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Alright, well, before we open our Bibles, I uh, just want to express that I'm very glad Katie and I are to be back with you guys. and uh, We do miss the fellowship whenever we are apart for, for a Sunday. And uh, thank the Lord that we were able to get back here safely. So, uh, good to be with you again. Um, this is intended to be my final message on marriage. I've gotten, I'd like you to know, I've gotten a lot of very uh, encouraging feedback with some of the subject matter we have covered, even though categorically we've covered about four of them uh, in many sermons. So, you know, if there is something you would like me to, co- to cover, like a last second, but Jonathan, what about this? Please tell me. Um, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll think about it. I think I've, you know, we always kind of customize it, uh, sometimes based on what we think are the most pressing issues of our time. And there's going to be, uh, uh, varying, uh, issues that we're going to cover based on whatever time we find ourselves living in. And so I have tried to, um, cover both issues that are more timeless, like husbands loving their wives and, you know, other, other issues that I think are more, again, more relevant to the things that we're experiencing in our old uh, our own culture, but if there is something that just seems like if I had a blind spot and you're thinking, Jonathan, what in the world? Why didn't you talk about this? You know, try to get to me by Tuesday morning, and uh, maybe we can cover something. Other otherwise, I'm gonna I'm gonna move on, and I will start covering some other material uh, from the scriptures. So, uh, as you've seen in your bulletin, uh, the uh, the title of this sermon I hope stands out and grabs your attention. Reforming marriage, reversing Chernobyl. Um, many of you, if you are a student of history or you are aware of uh, the fall of the Soviet Union and the various events that led up to the fall of the Soviet Union, praise the Lord, you are most likely aware of the catastrophe, the catastrophic meltdown that occurred in Chernobyl, Ukraine, uh, back in 1986. It is still um, still viewed as the worst nuclear disaster um, in human history. The, the, one of the most catastrophic blow-ups. It happened on April 25th, 1968. It happened during routine maintenance. And it was scheduled at what was named as the V.I. Lenin Nuclear Power Station's fourth reactor. Now, I would say if anything, anything that bears Vladimir Lenin's name is worth staying far away from. So this to me was just something that was inevitable. And what happened was, according to National Geographic, uh, the workers planned to use some downtime to run a test, and that was a test to see whether the reactor could still be cooled if the plant lost power. That's, that can be a very uh, perilous test, very risky. But during the test, it turns out workers violated safety protocols and there was an unexpected power surge inside the plant. They tried to shut down the reactor entirely, and yet, lo and behold, there was another power surge that caused a chain reaction of explosions. I'm trying to give you the bumper sticker version here, but this was disastrous. Caused a chain reaction of explosions resulting in the nuclear core itself being exposed and then spewing radioactive material in the vicinity and up into the atmosphere. Again, the worst nuclear accident in history. And of course, they tried to keep it secret, but it's very hard, as we have seen, to keep a nuclear meltdown secret. You can't cover it up. So you can either mischaracterize it, you can, you can deflect it, you can say, yep, there was a meltdown. There was a bad meltdown. In fact, the meltdown was so bad that scientists 
estimate that the zone around the Chernobyl plant will not be habitable for up to 20,000 years. Think about that. That's how much radioactive uh, activity occurred there. 20,000 years. And so that was what we could say a rather unprecedented uh, historical event. But you think about all the, all the fallout. Lots of fallout. It is estimated that there were 190 metric tons of uranium that went up into the atmosphere. 335,000 people had to be evacuated. And there was a 19 mile wide exclusion zone around the reactor. If you've ever been, just to, to note a parallel, if you've ever been to Mount St. Helens in Washington, there is a sign which says, you are now entering the blast zone. And it's unbelievable because the mountain's still so far away. And yet when, when that land, that, when that earthquake and landslide and explosion of the mountain occurred, it was just devastation all around. And so something very similar, uh, took place on a, on an atomic level, uh, in Chernobyl when that happened. So again, in the immediate aftermath, 28 people died as a result of this accident with 100 injured. The United Nations Scientific Committee, quoting from this article from National Geographic, on the effects of atomic radiation has reported that more than 6,000 children and adolescents developed thyroid cancer after being exposed to radiation from the incident, although some experts have challenged that claim. What's interesting, too, is in the heart of this facility, even now, there is something known as the elephant's foot. And the elephant's foot actually kind of looks like an elephant's foot, given that name because of its wrinkly appearance. There is a pile of radioactive material composed mostly of corium, once, call, once called the most dangerous place in the world. If you're familiar at all with radiation exposure, if you stood next to the elephant's foot or in its immediate vicinity for five minutes, you would probably die. That's how much radiation is there. And, it, and it's still, a, you know, again, very dangerous place to be. Um, and of course, it was a very, a very deadly, very deadly accident. And it's, it's amazing even to see throughout the last few decades what uh, Russia initially and then Ukraine has tried to do to contain this because the radioactivity was everywhere. And they put an initial cover over it to try to contain some of the uh, radiation seal off the site. And then later on, I believe it was just a few years ago, they, they put an even more massive um, container over it, I think composed of concrete and steel, to try to block the radiation. So it's still a very dangerous place, and there's just no, there's just no going near it. Um, you do so at your own peril. And so, of course, I use this, I use this uh, illustration to say that often, unfortunately, marriages will uh, reflect what happened uh, in Chernobyl. It, it, we have had, we have experienced, even in counseling in Emmaus Road, certain certain uh, marital unions in our own midst have gone through an event that we call a Chernobyl event, where there is an epic meltdown of the relationship, or one person, because of a lack of self-control, absolutely loses their mind, cannot cannot think biblically, cannot act reasonably, and they end up kicking back against any kind of imposition of biblical authority or admonishment. And so, suffice it to say, we do not want your marriages to resemble anything like Chernobyl. We don't want there to be conflict that, that concludes in an epic meltdown of the marriage. And notice too, what happened in Chernobyl, even though it's, there's attempts to contain it, it couldn't be hidden. It couldn't, the event itself could not in any way really be effectively contained. It affected people from the outside. You know, you have this atmospheric condition called wind and it blows the, the radioactive material everywhere. And a, a highly dysfunctional marriage, a marriage that is undergoing Chernobyl, a Chernobyl event can never stay contained. It's going to affect, further affect your marriage. The solidarity of it is going to affect your children, the way you raise them. It's going to affect the way they view you. It's going to affect the way they view the Lord Jesus Christ, because after all, as we've already established plenty of times, marriage is supposed to reflect the union between Jesus Christ and His church. So it affects everything and it can't stay contained, even though we may try to fool ourselves. But it's going to impact our households. Marital dysfunction and divorce rates are even going to, and they already do, affect the wider culture's 
view of marriage. And I think that is exactly why people tend to look down on marriage. Even if it's anecdotal, they say, well, look at all the divorce, look at all the dysfunction, look at all the abuse, look at all of the neglect, look at all of the messed up children. Why even bother getting married? Especially since 50% of marriages now, so we're told, end in divorce. Marriage is not viewed biblically. It's not viewed through a redemptive lens, and so it is often seen in today's culture as a form of indentured servitude or willful enslavement. That is how, that's, that's how they reason. Monogamy, marital faithfulness, is seen as a myth, something that's unattainable, that we're just really fooling ourselves to think that a man and a woman can remain faithful to one another for several decades, as long as they both shall live. To the point where even if one is married, the vows have really changed from as long as we both shall love. Or as long as we maintain the same interest. Put, put whatever qualification you want to in there. I actually just read a, an article on Yahoo News. I don't even know what I was doing on there, but Yahoo News talks about, it was, there's an article of this woman who was talking about, uh, the fact that she, she was now free to travel after d- divorcing her husband. But they, she just realized that they had changed, their interests had changed, what was, what was important to them had changed, and so now she had to, she had to free herself from that relationship. And it's just treated as natural and acceptable. Well, you know, go sister, you do you. You got to do what makes you happy. That's how we view it. Faithfulness is seen also as a superstition that denies our natural impulses. See, again, at least it's consistent, right? Once we deviate from God's structure and design of marriage, what are we but animals? We're just mutated, evolved cosmic goo. We're, we're just sort of elevated beasts. So why not deny our natural impulses, and and fulfill any kind of lustful desire we may have. We're just being human. That's how marriage is viewed. And these things often are found within the context of a Chernobyl event. And so we want to prevent that. So what I want to do today is offer some some wisdom. Again, sort of parting Parting wisdom, some stuff that maybe got lost in the fray of all that I had been preaching on. You know, I try to categorize things, but some of these things you have heard before, but I think they're so important. I think we need to hear them again. I think we need to hear them again and again. So these are some things that I believe will help counteract. They will resist, even reverse a Chernobyl event. You, your marriage may be on the rocks. Your marriage may be go, undergoing a complete meltdown. But we have to remember that we are Christians. right? We are Christians. We have to remember that in, in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, he, he died not only to redeem our souls, He died to redeem everything. His work is an ongoing reconciling work. And that especially means reconciling our marriages. So if you're here today and your marriage just is really struggling and maybe you've given up, I would say please do not give up. The glory of our Lord is at stake. Even apparently broken marriages can be restored and honor Christ. Because that is the purpose of marriage. That is the purpose of everything. Remember, your marriage isn't just about you. It's not about your personal fulfillment and contentment and happiness. Ultimately, it's about the glory of God. And what happens is that a Chernobyl incident or a Chernobyl atmosphere can try to rob us of cultivating an atmosphere where the glory and honor of Christ can prevail. Because we're so focused on the disaster itself, we ultimately lose hope. We think that there is no way that God can possibly intervene and restore this broken union. And yet the Gospel offers us hope. It offers us a trajectory to reconciliation. But we have to be careful to humble ourselves and listen to what God's Word says. And like I said, a lot of this, what I'm going to say today, is going to kind of fill, fill in some of the gaps, some of the things we've missed. Some, some of these things are going to be simple reminders of, of, uh, of things that can help counteract uh, the things that we are tempted to, to, to do, ways we're tempted to sin when there is conflict. So much of what I'm going to say is wisdom to, to be applied even in the midst of conflict, to keep us from sin, to keep our head thinking biblically. 
That's why we call it reversing Chernobyl. Remember, what, what does the gospel do, friends? It reverses, it's to reverse the curse. Not just stop the curse, but to reverse it and restore what was lost and even exalt that, to take that to an exalted level. So don't forget that. So again, not exhaustive by any means. And I think pertaining to marriage, we've covered, I think, what the most pressing issues are regarding purpose, roles, what it means to be a man and a woman, intimacy, even communication we spent a lot of time on. So these are big picture items I'm going to bring up, that, re- and they're going to relate mostly to communication, but collectively they affect the operation and function, and even our understanding of each category that we have been studying. These things will affect intimacy. They will affect your ability to function in your respective identity as well as your responsibility as husband and wife. And they will be responsible for the stability and harmony of your communication. So the things I'm going to tell you this morning affect all of these things. And they may seem kind of random, but they all have an important um, application. And I want to cover some things that I, w- I refer to as blind spots. Things that, things that are remedies for things that we do to kind of sabotage our marriage, sab- sabotage our unity with our spouses, and we kind of don't realize that we're doing them. Have you ever tried to, maybe you tried to confront somebody about something, and in the midst of that confrontation, they started doing it. Right. Hey bro, I noticed that, you know, when you try, you tend to resist correction a lot, and then they immediately <laughs> go into fight mode, and they fight what you're saying. Oh, how dare you? You're so judgmental. Who are you? Man, just casting the first stone, why don't you? And you're like, you're doing it again, bro. That's what happens. That's what I mean by a blind spot. And so I think kind of anchoring, just if we can have an anchor text this morning, and there have been several of them. You know, we talk about Ephesians 5 a lot, you know, the, the respective roles of, of, of the man and the wife, that, that the man is to love her as Christ has loved the church. We are to lay our lives down for our wives. We are, we are to wash them with the water of the word, that the husband is to be a sanctifying catalyst in the marriage. And of course, uh, complementing that role is the woman who is to submit to and respect her husband. Okay, We've gone through that in great detail. That's a good anchoring text. And what I'm going to say this morning is, of course, going to apply to that. But I also think of Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul says, you know, we've been camping out in Ephesians quite a bit. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have received the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance, right? Tolerance, a biblical kind of tolerance for one another in love. And of course, listen to this, verse 3, being diligent, there's that word again, diligent, right? Watchful, right? Focused, committed, working, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, right? Even though Paul is talking directly to the church, right? This finds its place most profoundly in the context of marriage. You are to apply this to your marriage. And I would say, if you don't apply these to your marriage, they're not going to turn up in the church. Because the church is composed largely by a collection of married believers. And like I keep saying, if your marriage is dysfunction, is dysfunctional, and you have a, a, a local expression of the body of Christ full of members whose marriages are dysfunctional, guess what's going to happen? That local expression of the body of Christ is also going to be dysfunctional. And so keep, keep this text in mind as we apply it to marriage and be diligent, right? To be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And of course, we each have as man and wife our respective responsibilities as it comes to that. But it is, you know, it, it, it kind of prevails on you. It prevails on you to apply biblical wisdom as a man or a woman as to how that pertains to your marriage. We're obviously not all in the exact same place when it comes to marriage, but diligence we must show, preserving the unity, right? Marriage is a union. And if you are Christians, then the spirit is in that marriage. And you want to do whatever it takes to preserve that bond of peace. And so that's what we're talking about today. That diligence, right? Diligence is required in order to reveal some of those blind spots. 
Some things that are so patently obvious, we would think, and yet we forget them. We forget to apply them, especially in moments of conflict. And so I think the first one I would like to talk about this morning is probably the most obvious and yet the most weighty and yet the one we so often, sometimes first, throw out the window when conflict appears in the marriage. So here we go. Oh, this is good. This is profound. You're going to be like, wow, really? <laughs> Here's the first thing. Peace and cultivating peace through conflict. Number one, scripture, write these down. Scripture is your authority. Scripture is your authority. That is the all-prevailing authority. It is the final word. Well, what's my authority for that? Well, we read in 2 Timothy, right? There's the verse. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. It is the very Word of God. What we have written, right? what we have in our hands, what you guys brought with you this morning, is the very Word of God. The God-breathed Scriptures written down. And it's profitable. right? That's the first thing that it tells you. It's profitable. It is good for you. For doctrine, for reproof, for correction for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What does that tell you? That Scripture is all-sufficient. There is no there is no uh, work or, or duty or responsibility you will be faced in life or in marriage where you will find that Scripture is insufficient. Scripture, God's revealed authoritative Word, is clear and it is sufficient for all that you will do. It is sufficient to help you navigate through all of the issues of life, especially the ones you're going to face in marriage. But often when conflict comes, that is the very first thing that is jettisoned, is the authority of Scripture. And sometimes what happens is when conflict comes, what do we do? We kind of, we, we kind of have our own defaults built in. When we're operating in the flesh, when we throw out God's Word, what happens? We replace the objective truth of God's Word for the subjective truth. Word of something else. Usually the subjective word of you. Sometimes we can categorize these things. Most often, I think, we fade to emotion. Right? We brought these, these categories up before. We use our feelings to be authoritative. Right? Well, you may have said something, or God's Word has said something, but you have thrown God's Word out of the picture. So what are you going to fade to? Your feelings. Your emotions. And so your Feelings are going to kind of hijack, usurp as it were, Scripture's authoritative position in your life, and you are going to act as if your emotions and how you feel are the be-all and end-all. So rather than submitting your emotions to Scripture and having the Word of God guide your feelings, your emotions end up being the final word. So it doesn't matter what God's Word says, it's what my feelings tell me. And it's how this other person made me feel in the moment. That is going to be, that is going to be my platform. That is going to be the standard with which I attempt to resolve the conflict or walk away or run away or hide or deny the conflict. Think about Chernobyl, right? I mean, it was so profound. It's, it was impossible to deny. And yet when, when a marriage ex- uh, goes through something like that, sometimes that's what we do. We, we take a, sort of like the concrete structure. We just roll it over and pretend all that radioactive fallout isn't, isn't, continue, isn't continuing to occur. And yet, Scripture has to be given its proper place. It must be honored as God's authoritative word. For in doing so, we honor God Himself. You know, we don't, we don't fade to our emotions. Another thing we don't fade to, we don't fade to our education, right? When we, dis, when we discard Scripture, that's the other thing we go to, right? It's not just what I feel, it's what I know, what I have learned. Right. We go there. But if what you have learned, if your education is not bowing at the feet of Jesus Christ, if it's not bowing to the authority of His Word, then what? Then what, what, what's the meaning of that? What good is going to come out of that? If what you think you know, if what you think you have learned is attempting to usurp the authority of Scripture. The third one, is your efforts right? Not only does the Word of God give us give us an authority, give us a standard, but it gives us power. It gives us the wherewithal to navigate these difficult conflicts that will inevitably emerge in our marriages. And of course, we know what the Word of God tells us that we operate by faith 
in the Lord Jesus Christ and through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. But if we put Scripture aside, we forsake its power. We forsake its enablement. We forsake its, its wisdom. Scripture must also not be displaced by our own efforts. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. And here's the other one. Here's the fourth one. I think a lot of us do this as we talk about our experiences. Our experiences. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I have gone through. What, you know, what has happened to me. You don't know how difficult this marriage has been. And yes, sometimes marriage is difficult. But it's in those moments where we're tempted to put scripture aside, to, to put a, to, to put a, a cover over the light of scripture and the truth that it brings and fade to our experiences. And suddenly what we've been through now makes the final call. Those are the temptations we face when we go through conflict. Those are the things that can be catalysts for a Chernobyl event. And often they, they, they not only precede the event, but they also come after. Because when something catastrophic happens, we, we often look at the mess that's been made and we succumb to the temptation to go anywhere, to rely on anything but God's Word. But we are told so clearly that, it, that, that Scripture, the Bible, is God-inspired. It's God-breathed and it is profitable. And what's the purpose of that? That we may be complete, thoroughly equipped. And that means also equipped as man and wife to lead a godly marriage together. I mean, Scripture is no stranger to, to proclaiming its own importance. Consider what the Lord said to Joshua. one eight. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then, listen to this, you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. See, it's not merely the Lord giving Joshua an inspirational pep talk. He's underscoring the importance, the irreplaceable nature of God's Word. You know, you think about, I mean, we were warned of this. You go back to Genesis 2. Don't eat of the tree, Adam. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day you do so, you will die. God's Word is binding and authoritative. To violate it, you know, you know how it establishes its authority? One of many ways is that to violate it leads to death. That's how you know something has punch. That's how you know something has authority. That's how you know something is serious. That when you violate it, there are catastrophic implications. But conversely, and we find this in Joshua 1.8, that to obey the Word of God by faith, right? God isn't encouraging Joshua to walk legalistically. No, He's encouraging him to walk in faith, trusting the Word of God. But if you trust the Word of God, you will also obey it. You will follow it. That's how we know it establishes its authority as well. It promises prosperity, success. And we can say the same for our marriage. If you want your marriage to prosper, to flourish, to be fruitful, to have an impact on those around you for the kingdom of God, you must obey the Word of God. And you may say, oh, this is the book of the law. Well, we're not under the law anymore, Jonathan. We're under grace. How much more should we obey the Word of the living God? It is grace that empowers us, that frees us to obey the Word of God so that we do not have to face, face the Word of God in fear or hesitation. No, we can look at it and be joyful. Just like the psalmist in, in Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day and night. We can look upon the law knowing that it does not condemn us. So what impact will it have in your marriage with, when you as man and wife can look at the Word of God together regularly, consistently, and faithfully and say, this is good. This is for our good. This is right. This is true. This is powerful. It is going to give us prosperity and success in our marriage. We can trust it because God has spoken. And as a bookending this point, in Joshua 23.6, he's reminded again, be very firm then. Be very firm then to keep 
and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. No, no, tur- no turning aside. And you realize that's how some of Israel's, the kingdom of Israel's faithful kings were described. They kept the law of God and what didn't they do? They didn't, they didn't turn from it to the right or to the left. Like there was, there was no compromise. You would, you would look on their lives and even though they were imperfect men, you could not identify any, any patterns of compromise in their life. They trusted the word of God. And for any marriage to flourish and resolve conflict, you too must remember, even in the heat, the so-called heat of battle, you're not each other's enemies, but sometimes you treat each other like it. You have to remember, Scripture has the final say. The Word of God is authoritative. You must remind that, remind yourselves of that regularly. Think about what Psalm 119 says, Your Word have I hidden in my heart, that I might not sin against you. The one who is resolved to not sin against God will have equal trouble sinning against his wife. This all goes back to how you relate to the Lord. How you relate to His Word. If you honor the Lord and His Word, you will honor your spouse. We have to remember too that the Word of God is authoritative, but it is final in its authority. In its authority. Consider Isaiah 48, 40 verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. The Word of the Lord is going to outlast everything and everyone. It is going to outlast you. No matter how much you doubt it, no, no matter what naysayer comes in and tries to decry what the Word of the living God says, that one day that man's going to die. And guess what? The Word of the Lord is going to endure. The Word of the Lord is going to continue to be authoritative. It is going to continue to give life. It is going to continue to be proclaimed to all the nations and to do its work. So how foolish would it be knowing how profound the power of the Word of God is for you as man and wife to somehow give it, relegate it to second class status because you know this or because you've been through that or because you feel this way or because you're trying your darndest. Word of the Lord endures forever. There was a saying that I heard when I was in high school. is this, God said it. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. What's wrong with the order there? What should it be? God said it, that settles it. Regardless of what you think about it or believe it, God has said it, that settles it. His word is true, His word is firm, His word is authoritative, regardless of what you think about it. The question is, if God has said it and that settles it, do you believe it? Do you trust in it? Do you defer to it immediately as your authority, even in the storms of marital conflict? Even in that, even when meltdown seems to be inevitable. Do you, do you apply the word of the living God so that stability returns to your marriage? The word of God cannot be replaced, ignored, or discarded, and it is so at the peril of your marriage. It is so at the peril of your eternity. And here's the thing. We said this before. You must obey it whether your spouse does or not. You are still obligated to obey the word of God and to rejoice in it and to apply it. Even when your spouse is not. And we heard it from our call to worship this morning from the Psalms. What does is, what is the psalmist say? But as for me, right, no matter what anyone else is doing, as for me, I will walk in my integrity. And that, that's usually the number one excuse to try to throw off this light yoke of the commandments of God. As you see your spouse disobeying, you, you see your spouse sinning and acting wrongly, acting or walking counter to what the Word of God says. And because you're one flesh, a lot, of, a lot of the time, especially if the husband is leading the way in this foolishness, the wife will follow, the kids will follow in his folly. And yet it prevails upon one of you, if you identify yourself with Jesus Christ, that you obey, that you maintain your integrity. And we see, and we see the, the, the brilliance and beauty of that lesson. Remember from 1 Peter, I think it's 1 Peter chapter 3. Right in his instruction to wives. Even if you wives have husbands who are disobedient, you see, you uphold your integrity. You obey Jesus Christ. And what's the anticipated uh, uh, result? That your husband will be one without a word. He'll see your example. He'll see your resolve. 
Because you have seen that no matter what your spouse does, their disobedience does not invalidate the authority of God's Word. It does not also give you a right to disobey it. So no matter what the conflict, remember that as your starting point. And I mean, some of you, some of you in here are preparing for marriage. And I urge you, in that first year, you think, man, that, that, that honeymoon period is great. And thank God for honeymoon period. But you're going to have to get used to each other. And there's going to be a whole lot of awkward. There's going to be a whole lot of, oh wow, I didn't expect this. It's like I didn't know I was marrying this. It's like I don't even know you. I'm a stranger in my own home. Who is this man or woman that I married? You're not who you pretended to be, right? <laughs> so many things are going to come up. So many things are going to be exposed and come to light. And you're going to be tempted like, well, I didn't know what I was getting into, so I guess I can do whatever, I guess I can do whatever I want. Well, no. You are called to uphold your integrity. There's going to be a, what, all that to say is in your first year of marriage, and many of you can attest to this, there will be so a lot of conflict. It'll spike. Like, what happened? There was none of that in the courtship. And yet, first year of marriage, there's a lot to work through. And both of you, and I urge you, I implore you by the word of the living God, you must uphold your integrity. And when that conflict happens, you both, and men, this is where you lead, you look at your wife and you say, what does God have to say regarding this? Because God has said it. And that settles it. And we're going to obey it. I mean, I've, some of you have shared this story with a couple that I counseled at, at Grace Church in California before even moving out here. And, and as, you know, I think I was 29 at the time, I hardly knew what I was doing. But after, after a few years of, of, of seeing this couple, I ran into the husband during, I think it was an actual a church conference or something. And, and their marriage was so dysfunctional. And when he told me that his marriage was great and better than it has ever been, I asked him why. And you know what his response was? He said, me and my wife got together and we asked ourselves, are we going to obey the Word of God? I mean, that's what it comes down to. It's not works righteousness. I would say it's the work of righteousness. If you are two justified people before God, saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, righteousness will be the inevitable fruit. You together will look at the Word of God and say, what has God said? Has God said this? That settles it. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. And you're going to have every excuse not to obey. But you must. And I was so blessed to hear that. Because it was totally unexpected. I was expecting to him to say that we were divorced. But he said that's what it came down to. Are we going to obey Jesus Christ or not? And we're believers. And we know the answer. Because the Word of God is our standard. And Christ is our Lord. He is the Word incarnate. And no matter what the other person is doing, we apply the Word of God faithfully. We apply it joyously. right? We apply it powerfully, consistently, without hypocrisy. And please do not use the authority of the Word to take jabs at one another or engage in spiritual one-upmanship. Use it for each other's benefit. Use it for one another's purity and sanctification. Right? What, did, what, did, what does Jesus say in His great high priestly prayer? Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Right? You are. What does sanctification mean? It means you're becoming like Jesus. And so when you apply the word together, you are helping one another become like our Lord. But that is only done through the word of God. Right? So it's not just, we don't just use the word of God to, you know, try to resist or hold back a Chernobyl meltdown, right? No, we, we, we see its positive effects. We see its sanctifying Godward effects. But this does a mighty work in us, conforming us to the image of Christ. Why would you, as a man and wife, voluntarily put that aside for anything else? So remember that Scripture is your authority. Here's the second one. I didn't expect that to take so long. Number two, you've heard this one as well. But in light of the fact that Scripture is authority, is your authority, okay, so we're looking to God for that, right? As man and wife, you are looking to God. Now this next one pertains to kind of that, how, how you look at one another. And it is this. 
view one another in the light of the Gospel. That is, view one another redemptively. View one another redemptively. We've talked a lot about, one common reminder I've given you is don't be dismissive of one another. Don't look at each other's failures and use that to color everything you view about the person. View one another in the light of the Gospel. View one another in light of the redemptive work of Christ. Because when you do that, you are acknowledging the very activity of God in the life of your spouse. And so you reason very simply, if God is continuing to work on my spouse, if God loves this person, if God cares for this person, enough to continue to applying that redemptive work, even if they are obstinate for a time, even if they are disobedient, the Lord will not give up on them. He is the good shepherd. So neither will I give up. Neither will I throw in the towel. View one another in light of Christ's ongoing work. View one another in light of the fact that God has predestined their salvation. But that person is elect. But that person is a fellow heir of the grace of life. That's First Peter's point. Think about what Romans 8 says. Romans 8. Those whom He predestined, He what? He called. What was that predestinating all about? About They are predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. Those He predestined, He called. Those He called, He justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. And I always smile at that passage because you think, where is sanctification? It's like Paul skipped sanctification. But I think one thing we have to know, and it's hard, I don't want to, I don't want to speculate as to what Paul's intent was for leaving that out, but you view the whole of the book of Romans, and one thing is very certain, is that your sanctification is as certain as your justification. If God has justified you, if He has declared you righteous by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, then He will not fail to sanctify you. It is so certain that He can skip right to glorification because Glorification is the consummation of sanctification. It is the goal of sanctification come to full fruition. So we can go ahead and say, yeah, if He's justified you, He's glorified you. And and think of the tense in which He says that. He justified. He also glorified. Our glorification is so certain, Paul is acting as if it's already happened. So can we quit the quarreling? Can Can we quit from viewing our spouse in the worst possible light every time they give a weird look or speak an idle word and assume the worst about them and instead understand that Christ has called them into His own kingdom and glory. They belong to Him. They are His workmanship. View your spouse in light of that reality. And if you are able to acknowledge and embrace that truth, then you will willingly and humbly be instrumental in that work. And we've already established that through Scripture. God uses people to be a sanctifying instrument in the lives of His other people. And of course, that's done with the authority of the Word. How can we view one another in light of the Gospel if we're completely unfamiliar with the power of the Gospel? We have to start taking the Word of God seriously. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Paul is addressing them. He says, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but for what it really is. They're seeing what the Word of God really is in its its true nature, and its true power. The Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So if your spouse is a Christian, understanding that the Word of God is performing a work. And if God is performing that work, that is something that you, trust me on this, that you want to be a part of. You don't want to stand at a distance. You don't want to act passively. There's no neutrality in this, friends. You're going to be either hostile to the Word of God as it works in your spouse, or you're going to be actively involved in it and supportive of it. But once again, you have to ask yourself, if, 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 you ha- if you cannot view your spouse in light of the Gospel, do you really understand it? Do you really believe it? Do you, really, do you understand the Gospel at all? But that is something that 
is, is so, is so key to resolving conflict and to prevent you from simply giving up and acting like your spouse is a hopeless case. It's kind of like one of those how dare you think that way about them moments. Don't deny the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. Here's another one. This is a hard one, okay? Because our emotions get in the way of this. But be willing to be judged. Be willing to be evaluated by your spouse. We've talked about this at length, but I think it's worth repeating. Right? It's difficult to be exposed, right? You're going to experience that a lot in the first year of your marriage. And it's going to continue. It's not going to go anywhere. You hold each other accountable. But you have to be, have a humble heart and be willing to be judged. That means you have to allow your spouse, without being a crybaby about it, to point things out about you. Right, we talked about the difficulty of submission for wives. Why? Because that means your husband has to tell you what to do. And, and, and we don't like people telling us what to do. It's sort of the same difficulty. But you have to be willing to be judged. You have to let the light of the Word expose you. Right? So if you, if, you're, if, you, if you believe that Scripture is authoritative, and if you are viewing one another in the light of the Gospel, guess what happens? There's light. The light will expose. The light will reveal what is actually going on. So you have to be willing to be judged. And as much as we love to say, oh, don't judge me, we, we take all judgment as bad, right? We, we immediately deflect and say, well, if you're judging me, you must be an evildoer because Jesus says do not judge um, we have plenty of teaching on that, but here's the deal. John 7.24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. We are commanded to do that. That definitely must have a place in our marriages. But if you judge one another, judge with righteous judgment. Tell the truth, right? Be honest, keep current. Here's the other one, Matthew 7.1 and 2, do not judge so that you will not be judged, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. I think one of the main takeaways of that is don't judge hypocritically, right? Be consistent in your judgment. Take the log out of your own eye first. Here's the other thing. 1 Corinthians 2.15, but he who appraises, who he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. See, we, th- we think of judgment as a very unspiritual, ungodly, unkind thing. But he says here, the spiritual man appraises all things. So if you are spiritual, if you're a Christian, you're going to be evaluating things constantly. So take the light and authority of Scripture and the continuing redemptive work of the Holy Spirit and apply that to your marriage. But judge righteously. Judge graciously. But if you are if you believe you are spiritual and you refuse to make any evaluations for the sake of niceness, for the, for the sake of keeping some false or imagined peace, you must repent and start judging. Just judge biblically. That's very difficult. None of us likes being judged. We understand that. But, as much as, as much as the light of Scripture may sting us, may sting the eyes, you know, it's salt in the wound sometimes. What does it do? It yields, right? What's its yield? The peaceful fruit of righteousness. It's this judging by the Word of God that brings in a true and lasting peace. Not ignoring the problem. But as hard as it is, you must be willing to be judged so that your initial knee-jerk reaction isn't, why do you have to be so judgmental? You don't want that, you don't want hostility to be instantly created when your spouse lovingly comes to you and has to put an important issue on the table. So, be very careful about demonizing judgmental behavior. Right? The Word of God judges everything. Are we going to demonize it because it exposes our ungodly behavior and our compromises? Not at all. We rejoice in it. So should you rejoice in the fact that your spouse was willing to come to you even though it was awkward. Okay. Don't make it weird because you're afraid of awkward. Receive the truth of what they have to say. Okay. Moving on. Let's try to get through these. Here's one. Very important. I think that's often a blind spot. Let your spouse be wrong. Okay? Don't take it personally if they don't diagnose the situation with 100% accuracy. We talked about the noetic effects of sin. Sin affects the mind. Sin affects our ability to make a perfectly sound judgment, right? We're still 
our mind is still being sanctified. Let your spouse be wrong. Think about what the Bible says so much about this. But one verse stands out. Proverbs 19.11. I was talking to Jeremy about this verse yesterday. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, right? A man's prudence. He's, he's, he's thoughtful, right? He thinks an issue through. He's circumspect, right? A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, right? Rather than being explosive, he thinks an issue through first. He's like, oh, okay. I'll be patient. I'll think this through. I will not react in anger. But listen to this. And it is his glory to overlook a transgression so this man doesn't take everything personally. He doesn't feel personally wounded. He doesn't act like a wounded puppy every time his wife slights him or gets it wrong. Treat each other, friends, with enough grace. Treat one another with enough grace so that even if they get it wrong, it's like, hey, it's no big deal. Some of us take so personally being misdiagnosed. Like, why, why are we so on guard? Remember, view your spouse redemptively. They had the humility and the care for you to come to you and, and put something before you. They're going to get some things right, and, and sometimes they're going to get it wrong, right? Suggestion does not equal accusation. So overlook whatever offense that is. Don't take it personally and show them the honor due their humility for coming to you. Defending our own honor is not our first priority. What we consider when these things are exposed or even suggested is, how then can we promote the glory of God in the, in the midst of this friction? That's your first step. Fourthly, and this is kind of going along with this, and this is a big one. This one is so important. And this is one of the huge blind spots that we don't often realize what we're doing. But pay attention. Okay, Don't put one another in a position that no matter what you say or what you do, you're wrong. No matter what you do, you're wrong. Don't do that to each other. And that's one thing that's going to be hard to recognize. Because the friction's already there. But this will absolutely devastate your communication. You're not going to want to talk to one another anymore. And then, of course, to my point, why are you silenced? Silence. Why aren't you saying anything? You don't like me? Did I do something wrong? No, I just can't talk to you about anything because you take everything so personally. Well, what's that supposed to mean? Like, you're doing it again. Don't put each other in that position, right? Assume the best. Assume the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. And assume they care about you. Don't always assume a selfish motive. In Proverbs 16.27, we read this, a worthless man digs up evil. And in apply to this situation, the worthless man is always looking for a reason to accuse. Don't treat your spouse that way. That's not loving. That's not respectful. Where you're always looking for an avenue of accusation. Always casting something they say, no matter how well-meaning, under the shadow. Under the shadows, right? Don't do that to each other. Think of how it's a good illustration is from Exodus 5, uh, verse 17. And Pharaoh is speaking to the Hebrews and he says, You are lazy, very lazy. Therefore you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work, for you will be given no straw. Yet you must deliver the quota of bricks. Right? Don't have straw. Well, tough. Right? Now you got to gather your own straw. What do you think of them apples? But you got to make the same amount of bricks. And of course, I think the illustration is plain. Is when we are putting one another in a position that no matter what they say or do, they're wrong. What are we doing? We are increasing the burden upon them. That is enslavement in marriage. Are you holding them hostage? They can't say anything. They can't think anything. They can't do anything without you ascribing some ill motive or ill manner in what they do. That is going to cripple your marriage. It's going to cripple any harmony you may otherwise enjoy. In fact, I found in, found in Jude the same thing that one of the marks of a false teacher is that they are always accusing. In verse 16, it says these are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts. It doesn't really elaborate on it. They just, they're just fault finders. They just find some grounds to find an issue with everything. And of course, the motive of that is, I think, control. Controlling, controlling people in the church, trying to, trying to gain otherwise faithful followers. So, of course, an example of that in real time is if you, if you, if you, uh, if you're, if you're a wife and you want your husband 
to lead you, and then He leads, don't accuse Him of being controlling. That would be a very real-time example of putting your husband in a position where he can't, no matter what, he's wrong. And so often we don't realize that we're doing that to one another. But that's, that's a huge blind spot. Here's the, here's the fifth one. I think we have six, so we'll get through this. Listen to one another and do not talk over each other. It's amazing the debates, or I don't even know what you call them, but where it's basically they're just screaming over each other. Whoever is the loudest, the most obnoxious, and the most intimidating wins. Oh, if it were that easy. It's not who's the most reasonable, who is the most accurate, who's the most truthful, who has the most data. It's who's the loudest, who is the strongest. That's why James 1.19, and this is great, he says, this you know, my beloved brethren. He's like, you guys know this. This isn't new, new stuff I'm telling you. But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Okay. How many ears do you have? You have two. How many mouths do you have? One. That should tell you something about your priorities. What's the most important thing? It's listening. Being quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, right? That is reflective of the character of God. God who is said is rich in loving kindness, slow to anger, right? Compassionate. Save sinners. But He's slow to anger. Now listen to this. I'm going to give you a barrage of Scripture because this is what we need. Proverbs 10.19 Where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. So you want to restrain conflict. You want to find a peaceful resolution. Stop talking so much. Stop thinking that what you have to say is the only thing that matters. Proverbs 14.29 He who is slow to anger has great understanding. Isn't that ironic? Typically we think, man, if you're, if you're letting it all hang out, right? You're just out there blasting people with your words. Oh, you must be wise. You must, you know, you have something to say, but the one who is slow to anger knows things. He has understanding. He gets it. But he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. Proverbs 15.18 A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms a dispute. Right? Rather than being explosive, rather than thinking that you just have to get your point across, shut your mouth. Listen. Approach the conflict calmly and with patience and with gentleness. Proverbs 16.32, I love this one. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. Right? What do we just say? He who's the loudest wins. And he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. You know, back in that time, if you captured a city, you were someone. You were the big man. You were considered someone with strength. Right? Someone important. Oh, that guy, did you hear about the city he just captured? Wow. I want to be like that guy. But he says, no, 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 no. He who rules the Spirit, if you have self-control, you are to be honored more than, the, than a great conqueror because you have conquered your own passions and you're patient instead of angry. Proverbs 17.27, He who restrains his words has knowledge and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. So the same thing. Listen to Proverbs 29.20, Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than him. And if you have read the preceding 28 chapters of Proverbs, you would realize that there is very little hope for a fool. He's a, he's a man in dire straits. He's in a desperate condition. But the one who speaks in haste, wow, you start, you start thinking better of the fool. Maybe there is light at the end of the tunnel for this guy, and it's not an oncoming train. There's hope for the fool. So that is to say, be slow in speaking. Like again, a real, a real time example of this. Like when someone's talking, when you're trying to resolve conflict, don't spend the whole time planning your response. Here's another thing too. Invest the time. This is your beloved spouse who you're stuck with for the rest of your life. Praise the Lord. Invest the time to come up with solutions. Not every, not every interaction has to solve all of the world's problems. Not every sit down has to solve Global warming. Right? <laughs> and, and all the other issues of life. That's why you, again, you work through it. You take the time. You invest the time in one another. You sanctify that time, as it were, so that you can work through the various issues that will inevitably result because you're married. 
and because you're still being sanctified. And you're going to have to revisit these things. That's where patience and forgiveness comes in. That's where overlooking an offense comes in. You're going to constantly be revisiting these issues. You know, like many, most of you are going to have an elephant's foot in your life. That thing that just gives off. That's the hot zone. That's the radioactive, you know, remnant of your fallenness. And you're going to have to deal with that together and not melt down. So be willing to make that time investment. Okay, the last one, and I have very little say on this, okay, but I think it ties in well to the rest of this. Relationally speaking, your marriage comes first. Okay, your top priority is not your children. Your top priority is not your job. Your top priority is not your church. Your top priority is not solving global warming. Your top priority relationally is your spouse. So give that its due attention. And don't make these other priorities in life. Yes, they're important. But don't make them as excuses for ignoring the very real issues and very real conflicts you have to work through in your marriage. Give time to your marriage and other those other things will flourish. But I think the Word of God is clear. Relationally, your priority is your marriage. Honor God in the first things. And the rest will follow. It's the same principle that we read in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And then all these things will be added to you. Don't worry about them. Keep the main thing the main thing. And in this case, the main thing is your marriage. And if you're melting down, if you're having a, a, a Chernobyl incident, it's going to go noticed. And it, and it probably came about because you were you weren't Paying attention to all the things that caused the meltdown in the first place. So yes, we want to avoid Chernobyl, but we also have to realize that if it does happen, there is hope. We have to clean up, right? We have to restore it. And it's amazing that even in, even in the city of Chernobyl now, it says that nature is flourishing. Why? Because there's no human activity. The wolf population has increased several fold from other areas. It's green. You think, wow, how can you think of something like that as poisonous? And yet, it is. It's poisonous. That's the One of the problems is just that. There's no human activity. And marriage is that one-stop shop, right? That's, that's the, that, is, that is the platform for subduing. That is the problem. That is the platform for taking dominion. That is the platform for possession and subduing. And enjoying God's creation and cultivating. That's the problem with Chernobyl. It's not being cultivated. It's destroyed. There was no dominion. It was just domination. In the same way, we don't want our marriages to become that. We don't want to enter the, we don't want Chernobyl to become a jungle. No, we want to restore cultivation. We want to see human activity in the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't want it to be wild and untamed, but subdued and enjoyed. And we look at our marriages and say, Wow, there may be, there may have been a meltdown at one time, but now we see, because of the intervention of the grace of God, we see His presence, we see Him at work, and we see the joy and the stability and the glory that comes from that. So, again, I encourage you, I exhort you, please take all of these things, all of these things to heart and apply them and be willing to, um, be diligent and, and, and to expose where those things are lacking. Uh, in your marriage, and I trust that the Lord will will bless uh, those endeavors. So, uh, in light of that, let's let's commit this to Him. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you again uh, for your Word. Thank you. We could spend time going over these over these important points, and I pray God that they can be uh, have a lasting impact because they are truths that uh, they come from your Word. They they refer us to necessary a necessary application of Your wisdom and of, of Your power and Your grace. Lord, Your desire to, to save. Your desire to work in our lives. And Father, there's, there's probably so much more we could say about marriage. And I do hope uh, that as You continue to work, You will call to mind uh, the things that have gone forth. Those who are preparing for marriage, I pray, Lord, that they would take these things to heart, that they would apply them right away. And we know that uh, as much joy as there is in the honeymoon phase, there can be a lot of shock and awe. <laughs> uh, 
There can be a lot of unexpected twists and challenges. But Lord, we know that You are sovereign over these things, that You even bring them into our lives to teach us. And I pray that we would not miss the lesson. We would not miss the uh, the growth that comes as a result of of bowing the knee to Your Word and submitting ourselves to Your authority and yet uh, taking that grace in hand and, and simply saying, Lord, Your will be done. You have spoken and it is enough. And to trust that though it is difficult, uh, the fruit will follow because Your Word says it will. And so we can trust it. So God, I thank You for everyone in here today and I pray that Your blessings will uh, your, your, your blessings, your, your mercy and goodness will follow us from here this morning and that uh, we can rejoice with one another in the fact that You are our God. You are a good shepherd. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.